Good evening everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Tonight we're looking at Gutra Nikaya Book of Fours. 93 to 95, uh, 92 to 94. Actually, mainly 93. We're looking at, it's a good example of the teachings of the Buddha on the two two aspects of meditation, the two main aspects of meditation practice. And there's the aspect of tranquility and the aspect of insight, clear sight, clear vision, vipassana. So these we often refer to as samatha and vipassana. Here the Buddha specifies ajatang jeto samatha. Means samatha means tranquility. Ajatang jeto samatha means inner tranquility of mind or inner mental tranquility. Being inner, com inner, uh, internally composed. And the other one is adipanya dhamma vipassana insight into reality with higher wisdom. But in brief, tranquility and insight. It's important to understand these as the two aspects of meditation. The Buddha says some people gain tranquility but don't gain insight. Some people gain insight but don't gain tra tranquility. Some people don't gain either, uh, don't have either. And some have both. So there are certain types of meditation practice and there are certain meditators who only uh, practice leading to tranquility, for example. There's many meditations of this sort. Any meditation that doesn't focus on reality, well, you could, you could, well, not any, but any any beneficial meditation. A lot of meditation outside of the Buddha's teaching is only for the purpose of gaining tranquility. There are meditations which are meant to lead to other things, but for the most part they base themselves around tranquility. Any meditation that fixes on a single um, imaginary object, so, so conjured up in the mind, or even on a, a physically apparent object, maybe a sight or a sound, 
usually a sight, but it could very well be a sound. There are people who um, have meditations based on sounds. But the idea is to focus on the concept. So when you look at a candle, you're focusing on it as being something, being a flame. If you focus on a color, you're focusing it on, on being that color. You're not focusing on the experience of seeing it. You're not meditating on the experience. So you're not meditating on reality, exactly. Any meditation that's focused on beings, so loving-kindness meditation, friendliness, what we call metta, or compassion, karuna. All these types of meditation only have as the goal of calming the mind. Or they, on, they ha only have, they only exist in this classification, they're only on the tranquility side. They can lead to other things, magical powers. Um, they can lead to insight into things like past lives or the thoughts of others, seeing or hearing things far away, that kind of thing. A lot of magical things. But they can't teach you about reality. So a person who practices these might gain a very powerful mind. Of course, there are yogis and mystics and other traditions that have very powerful minds. But it has no bearing on reality. So when you come back down to earth, when you stop meditating, there can be great defilement lying dormant underneath your tranquility. Because you haven't come to understand, you've just come to avoid. You're able to transcend. But transcending is a temporary affair. It, it doesn't last and you come back down to earth. The other type of meditation is where you muck around in the mundane. It's actually much more uncommon. You don't want to get the impression that both of these are are equal. They're actually quite different. And insight meditation is special. Tranquility meditation is not so special. Spe in the sense that it's not something that is only found in Buddhism. It's quite special. It's not as special. It's not special in the same way as insight meditation. Only the Buddha taught insight meditation. Or maybe that's not even fair, because but only the Buddha taught insight meditation, leading to uh, enlightenment. So you could argue that there are certainly mystics and yogis who learn something about reality. They don't get very far, but potentially there's a ability to practice both regardless it's not an important uh, argument it's important to understand the difference so insight into reality dhamma vipassana it's still more special because um, because it's lasting is it something that's more real? The, 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 f the fix is, the solution is more natural. But there are some people who practice it without gaining any 
sort of tranquility and that can be a problem because they find themselves overwhelmed by the incredibly unpleasant nature of reality it's unstable, chaotic if your mind is not stable, it's not focused if you were to just go off and try to note things right? take this tradition this is why we tell people not to just note things one after the other you can easily work yourself up and you don't ever gain the tranquility necessary to see things deeply and to really understand things you don't gain the clarity of mind the richness, the fullness of the experience the superficial insight and your mind is not steadied, it's not composed so that's why we give people a meditation technique we have them always come back again to the stomach and then we, we watch various points on the body, that kind of thing but it's something to keep you stable and to cultivate a stability to your insight to not go back into the idea of focusing on a concept you don't need to focus on a concept to tranquilize the mind but you need some uh, structure to your meditation so this is why we give these exercises we put people through a course they're going through you know, and this is why we do walking meditations one step being right one foot at a time and then in increasing through the course we, we keep it rather uh, formalized because it helps it helps compose the mind tranquilize the mind And so the Buddha rightly says that someone who's just practicing samatha meditation should you know, use that as the base and then apply their mind to, to gain insight. Someone who's just gained insight should use that as a base and focus on tranquilizing the mind. Someone who's got neither, the Buddha says, they should think of themselves as a person they should think like a person with their head on fire or their clothes or their head on fire they should put forth and let's look at the Pali chando chavaya moja usaho cha usolhi cha apatiwani cha sati cha sampachanan cha karaniyam I like the Pali here is because there's lots of lots of qualities that one should cultivate but without either if one is in real dire straits without any tranquility or insight then one needs to do some work and just as if their head is on fire they should put forth great zeal the chanda vayama great effort usaha, usaha is another word for effort but it means like uh, uh, fortitude, resolve, apatiwanita, uh, zeal, another word for zeal. Hmm. I wonder if that's actually a negative. It looks like a negative to me. Ah, right. Patiwana means shrinking. So they should put forth the quality of not not shying away, they should be gung-ho, we might say 
satita, they should have mindfulness or remembrance. They should remember themselves, remember the present moment. Sampajanya, they should have clear comprehension or clear knowledge. Karaniyang, this should be done by them. Sayatapi bhikkave adita jelova adita sisova. Just as if monks, there were someone with their head, their clothes on fire, or their head on fire. Taseva jelasava sisasava nimbapanaya adimatam. For that person, they would, uh, they would, they would exert themselves to put out that fire on their, on their clothes are on their head in the same way. As for someone who has both, Buddha said, use them both as a base and work for the greater because this isn't it isn't a sign that things are done, it's just a sign that you're on the on the right path. Even someone who has both tranquility and insight, that's not in and of itself a certain um Something in and of itself a description or a certainty that the person is, is enlightened. But you need to use both of these once you have both of them and you don't have just tranquility or you don't have just insight without keeping your mind focused through the practice. And you have to use them both and, and increase them both. Based on those wholesome dhammas, uttari asavanankayaya yogo karaniyo. One should cultivate yoga. We have this in the word yoga again, but here is one. One should cultivate the endeavor for further destruction of defilement. So there's a, a um, acknowledgement that having these is, uh, is already destroying the defilements. And with these, you, you've already come a long way in, in uh, reducing your defilements through insight, through tranquility, through seeing things as they are. But the work for one, for such a one, is to continue, is to further their practice and continue on the way. So this is. I mean, there's a big debate over this because people have different ideas of what this means, and they talk about the Buddha talks about these things called jhanas. Jhana meaning meditation, but there are four distinct levels of meditation that the Buddha talks about and they can be interpreted either through the lens of insight or through the lens of tranquility and there's a big debate over which is which and which the commentary means and people try to put the commentaries and, and the Theravada tradition and anyway there's this whole big debate that some of you might be familiar with I like this sort of teaching here and I don't, you know, it's clear the Buddha didn't debate this sort of thing too much but he did try to point out that there are these two qualities 
and uh, clearly the best is when they're both together you wouldn't want to have just one or the other I think a lot of people don't realize that much meditation is just in one category or the other usually in the tranquility side because people can gain magical powers not being Buddhist but you can't gain wisdom not true wisdom unless you're practicing in line with the Buddhist teaching so it's important not to cling to your tranquility when you practice and your mind becomes tranquil becomes calm it's important not to cling to that but at the same time it's important not to get too caught up in insight and uh, investigation and without tranquilizing the mind otherwise you just become distracted and it's superficial and it can lead to distraction and and uh, mental fomentation anyway a little bit of Dhamma today there's our Dhamma for this evening now we'll go on to questions and just unmute you there okay just give me one second here let's make sure this is on sure. right no it's not okay so I've got to put gigs for you okay go ahead and say something okay can you hear me now Bante yes monitor no but why is it quieter oh because these aren't on 100% I see okay I think we're good Okay. In the past, I've done things that I regret, and a lot of people know about it. What can I do to stop caring about what people think of me and move on in my life? Stop caring what people think about you. Well, insight meditation, I mean, this practice is just incredible for that, really. Um, but sometimes it takes a affirmation on your part. You have to remind yourself and say, "Look, you know, this is all just this isn't real." You know. There's no. The worst thing that that could happen is I'll die, or the worst thing that you know, thinking about all these things that could happen, and they may just happen, and they're just things. You know, there's this book that my mom gave me once: "Don't sweat the small stuff," and it's all small stuff. One of these modern Buddhist books, a you know, pretty good book. And when Buddhism puts everything in perspective, it is all small stuff. You're, uh, what people think about you is not life-threatening, and even if it was, then it would just be your life. Probably the best, the best view to take is that what other people think of you doesn't make you a good or a bad person it, so so because good or bad being good or bad being wholesome or unwholesome that's really kind of important so you have to ask yourself what's most important the most important is wholesomeness and unwholesomeness good and evil what other people think about you doesn't affect that 
So what I'm saying is sometimes it's good to remind yourself of what's important. And this is the stepping back and reflecting. It's not meditation, but it's sometimes useful. But ultimately it's the meditation that helps you realize that helps you realize that none of that's significant. When you start to see people as just experiences, then certainly it doesn't matter what they think of you, because there's no they. The thought that pops into their head is it's just an experience. I mean, there's no quick fix to any of these problems that, you know, that so many of the problems that people come and ask. It's a matter of learning and understanding and, and, and letting go. And insight meditation is definitely for that. Your mind starts to relax, you stop freaking out. The thoughts that uh, come up when you regret are just thoughts. And so, most important is that you recognize them as just thoughts, memories. If you if you feel upset about them, then you have to note that you're upset. You can't stop them from coming up, and for the most part, in the beginning, you can't stop getting upset about it. But as you watch and as you look, your mind starts to see, and that's sort of what you're seeing now, is how unpleasant it is. And the more you see how unpleasant it is, the more clearly you see how unpleasant it is, the more you quickly you learn to not do that, to not stress about what people think about you. Meditation is just kind of an acceleration of the learning process because you learn things in life. We learn lessons based on the stress that things cause us. So we, this is why older people tend to be more, tend to be more, uh, what would you say, moderate, less uh, prone to outbursts because they've come to see that it doesn't bring any benefit. But they're, they've seen slowly, and their vision is just a lot less clear than through meditation practice. Pante, is it possible to use Pali as an everyday communication language? As a monk who travels abroad, have you ever faced a situation where you had to communicate in Pali with another monk who didn't speak English or Thai? I have, and uh, my Pali is not nearly good enough to do so, but I've used it to say a few words to Burmese monks, Sri Lankan monks. Um, I think there was even one case where I did try to talk to a monk who knew Pali. Ajahn Tong does this. Uh, he did this with a Burmese monk who came to... No, a Sri Lankan monk who came with us to, to see him. And uh, this Sri Lankan monk spoke, spoke good English, but no Thai. Of course, Ajahn Tong doesn't speak English. So he started speaking to him in Pali, and the Sri Lankan monk was like, I don't speak Pali. <laughs> he just assumed, because a lot of Sri Lankan monks are quite clever in Pali. Uh, but Ajahn Tong will, can, can say a few sentences and speak a little bit. He's actually cultivated it. We put together a, um, not we, it's, uh, some monks in Thailand put together a, um, a textbook for learning conversational Pali. Uh, and I have that. It would be really neat to... I've never had a chance to actually use it, but um, it would be something to go through and actually learn how to talk. You'd need, you'd need a group of people. One time we, ac we tried a long time ago, I tried this with some people on the internet, posting uh, chat messages. So someone would post a sentence on like a wiki, and then the next person would post a response. So you could do it on your own time.
on your at your own leisure and it really was it, it really was um, helpful for me to take the time to compose conversational sentences of course the only other person that really got into it wasn't very good at it and I mean I wasn't that good but he was substantially worse and so it ne and then he gave up but that would be something to have a um, some sort of group where we actually tried I've talked about it on our poly we have this high level poly study list but they're all PhDs and professors and a few monks mostly very busy and I never was able to get anyone really interested in it I have noticed an immediate effect in how I am less reactive to my teacher's laughter of me to the point where it no longer has a lasting effect. In class, during their laughter, I mindfully note the subsequent impurities that arise, the anxiety, the sadness, the anger, as well as the de desire to change or control their laughter. I believe it would be best for me to... Sorry. I believe it would be best for me to continue to meditate on the impurities that arise from their laughter rather than try to control or change it. Wouldn't you think it would be wisest for me to meditate on the desire to change and control their laughter and on all the subsequent impurities rather than, the, than act upon the impure, unwholesome desire? Wouldn't that give the best result for vipassana practice in order to become content with reality rather than try to control it? I don't understand the wouldn't. I mean, of course, yes. The answer is yes, but is it? Is it? Have I? Have I ever taught? <laughs> it sounds like you're you're saying, well, no, probably not. But if that's just a straight-up question, then absolutely, that sounds very much like you're understanding what we're trying to do. Sometimes in lying meditation, my breath elongates such my breaths elongate such that they become long. I know the principle of uncontrollability, impermanence, and unsatisfactoriness. And so would long breaths, as in naturally occurring long breaths, not be an issue? In addition, sometimes I do not feel like doing sitting meditation. So would it be fine to mix sitting meditation up with lying meditation? I don't see why it would be a problem if I'm still carrying out the practice of mindfulness, though in different postures. Yeah, you notice you you know that you're practicing, actually practicing meditation when you don't really have any questions. When you're able to answer all your questions, it sounds to me that you know what you're doing. And those are not issues. Go for it. My mind keeps wandering into past regrets. What can I do about it? I tell myself to stop thinking about it, but I can't help it. Mm, you're starting to understand this idea of non-self. Telling yourself to stop thinking doesn't make this thinking stop. That's not wh how thoughts work. Thoughts are not self. And that's what that means. What you're experiencing is, is exactly what the Buddha meant by non-self or not self. So you, it's not about doing anything about it. It's about learning not to try to do things about it. Now, your mind is wandering let's be clear about what's happening thoughts of the past are arising that's a much clearer way of saying it based on those thoughts of the past there arises subsequent regret 
which maybe even clearer than that would be uh, disliking. And you wouldn't think of it as disliking, but that's what it is. There's a disliking of the thought, or a disliking of the concept behind the thought, but a disliking nonetheless. And if you look at it that way, it's actually quite easy to deal with. The, the thoughts are not a problem. It's the disliking of them. So if you say to yourself, thinking, thinking, it's not a problem for those thoughts to come up again and again and again. But you're able to free yourself from the disliking them because you, you don't see them in that way. You don't see them as regrets. You see them just as thoughts. Whereas it takes training and it's actually, you have to, you have to be quite quick to catch it. But you can also catch the regret. So if you if you feel disliking of the thought, say to yourself, disliking or sad, or angry, however it appears to you. But absolutely, this is what you're starting. This is if you're practicing the meditation as I te as we teach, as we practice here. Um, this is exactly what you should see. That you can't stop your mind from thinking about whatever it wants to think about. That's the habit. It's this habitual nature of the mind. All you can do is start to change your habits, specifically the habit of regretting things, getting upset about things. And how you do that is by seeing it clearly, by watching and, and seeing how much stress you're causing yourself. And slowly your mind starts to change as it sees how much stress it's causing itself. But there's, so, there's, there's a, another problem here, is the stress that you're causing yourself by trying to control, trying to stop yourself from thinking that affirms the disliking of the thoughts, this trying to get rid of them, is just reaffirming the dislike of them, the regret, as you say. It's also creating stress because you can't get rid of them. And so you should just stop that, see that. In fact, that in and of itself is a habit, and it's a, it's a very strong habit in a beginner meditator. So that's one of the first things that you start to see you have to let go of, is this need to control everything, because it's causing a lot of stress and suffering. How do you do that? Well, you can't force yourself to stop forcing. You just have to, as already stated, you have to see it as, as how much, for how much stress it's causing you. And once you see how much stress and suffering it's causing you, you'll start to let go of that. What can one do about the fear of having a bad reputation or failure? I'm not sure now. Have you actually started meditating in this tradition? If you haven't, I, oh, there's 19 hours ago. This person might not even be there. Um, if you haven't, I would recommend start by reading my booklet. And you would just note to yourself, afraid, afraid. Bhante, what is the world of Sankaras that is mentioned as one of the three worlds, others being the world of space and the world of beings? Sankara means formation, so this refers to the world of experiences. Experiences is one way of looking at the world. The three worlds are ways of looking at the world. Akasa Loka is looking at the world from a physics point of view. Satta Loka is looking at the world from a point of view of beings or you know, realms of beings. Uh, Sankara Loka is looking at the world from a point of view of experience. So Sankara is something that is formed or, or is, is real, you could say, that arises. They're called formations, but really what they are is uh, Sabhava Dhamma, Dhammas that have uh, existential phenomena, I, I translate that as. 
things that exist they arise and they cease like beings and space doesn't really exist it's just a, a concept but it's based on experiences so each experience is formed from other experiences or it's it's formed from causes and conditions so it's called a sankara but what that is referring to is experiential reality Regarding your Ask a Monk video on addiction, attachment to entertainment, how should I then spend my time? I have decided to terminate a lot of my stimulation, re removing the games from my phone, including sudo Sudoku and word search, as I understand this to create states of attachment and addiction, and thus discontent. Would the stimulation from casual mobile puzzle games interfere with my progress in vipassana meditation in becoming content with the ultimate reality or will I still be able to eventually and naturally give these things up without the without first doing so and continue to progress in vipassana those things will slow your progress so the, yeah you can I mean doesn't make you it doesn't make you unable to cultivate insight it will they'll get in your way so it, how much is dependent on how obsessed you are with them but um, they're not evil see the the eight precepts the Buddha recommended for people who are undertaking intensive meditation courses so wh the question how should you spend your time is well you'd spend it in meditation in meditation now it's up to you how comfortable you feel meditating meditating all the time now especially if you don't have direct contact with a teacher meditating a lot becomes difficult so if you're not in a meditation course there's really no hard and fast answer to this i mean obviously the 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 less entertainment you can engage in the better but it, it, the the only thing i would say is it's not that significant it's not a huge problem playing s sudoku or word search it's not going to prevent you from becoming enlightened. It just makes it more difficult and slows you down. Um, yeah, but the idea that you can just give it up, I guess the point is the idea that you can just give it up without doing intensive meditation is, is generally... Um, Well, it's a di it's a difficult thing to do, so wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, you have the real you have the knowledge that it's a detriment to some extent, and so try to moderate it. And if you can do without it, fine. If you can't, you wouldn't lose sleep over it. Just you know, you know, you know what you have to do, and if you want to increase your progress, you know better you can the more the more time and effort you can put into actually meditating the better because you can't be mindful of course when you're playing these games that's the problem that's a big one of the big problems the addiction to them is another problem part of me feeling good about myself is through shopping rather than contentment is there anything i can do to stop this emotional spending meditate more you know, again these are only only things that you can free yourself through insight it's 
not something you can just turn off. When I try to feel the physical sensations in the abdomen, lots of mental images of abdomen of my body and face occur between those physical sensations. It also happens when I meditate with open eyes and note seeing. Images of my face flash between seeing. Sometimes it even feels that there are more mental images than physical sensations. When I try to focus harder on just abdomen, the number of images and their persistence increases. What to do with those mental images? Should they be noted? It would be really difficult because it seems that just a couple of images can appear between physical sensations in one second. Thank you for your help. Yes, they should be noted. You should note them as seeing, seeing, as long as they last. If they only last a moment, just say once, seeing, and then go back to your exercise. You'll find as this is a, this is a sign, you know, lack of, of stability of mind, which is natural in the beginning. But eventually your mind will become more sorted out and they won't mix like this. Or maybe they will, they'll come back. But when they do, you just have to note them. Noting in between is not a problem. If you're saying rising and then an image comes, say seeing, seeing, and if it only lasts a moment, then let's go back to the stomach again. So med this meditation is very much about being flexible, so it doesn't matter if uh, it's, it causes you to go back and forth. It's just as long as you keep trying to come back, you don't have to force the mind to stay with the stomach. Absolutely not. When you see anything, you'd say to yourself, seeing. If it stays, you'd say seeing, seeing. If it doesn't, you'll go back to the rising volume. Are monks allowed to accumulate wealth and to live within their own shelter, residence? If not, does a monk have no self-reliance or self-independence? Wouldn't a monk be entirely dependent upon a monastery? Would this not be a scary proposition? As well, it is a requirement for monks to live in monasteries, and how bound are monks in, to the monastery? What are the rules governing their freedom in terms of traveling from the monastery and whatnot? Well, there are a lot of rules. Um, so there, to some extent they're allowed to accumulate wealth, but to a very, very limited extent. And by wealth is just meant possessions. So there are some possessions that monks can have. Monks can't have more than one set of robes, they can't have more than one bowl, uh, but they can have various other cloths and, and you know, possessions. You can have a needle and thread and that kind of thing. Um, but it's not, it's not about then relying on others. It's about not relying on anything. It's about living in poverty without those things, so without wealth. Money doesn't make you dependent. Money takes you out of the realm of being in, of those activities that require you to spend money. You can't go to uh, a concert or something. You can't buy things. You live without. A monk is a fairly strict and austere life, monastic life. But they're completely independent. That doesn't create dependence. The only dependence monk monks have is is. Um, on their their base requisites, and the Buddha understood this, and and it was a concern, and that's why we try to address it. Um, that's a big reason for the, the poverty thing, because you don't want to be dependent. So you, for robes, you're to collect scraps of rags that have been thrown out. 
for food, you're to go on alms round and just take whatever people are giving out to poor to the poor, or you know, or to the religious. Because in India uh, and in any Buddhist country, people give out food to the religious. But even in Canada, I've been thinking about it. You know, thinking about going on alms round. The problem is, I'll get started and then it'll get really, really cold in the snow. But some monks even go on alms round in the snow. A little harder in in a in a city, um, in a city like this. There's no excuse really. I could, I could go on alms round. I think maybe I've just gotten complacent. See, the thing is, once you start teaching, you get so busy and and you start to give up certain things that you did before you were a teacher. I used to go on alms round everywhere in North Hollywood. I went on alms round. I could do it here, and I have, that's true, I am doing it. Anyway, let's not get too off track. But, um, and the point is to, to go with whatever is available. Like, people bring me food, so I don't need to go on alms round. But I'm not dependent on them. They've, they desire to bring me the food. If they didn't, I'd go on alms round, or I'd go and I'd find other ways to get food. Um, but that's the point, is to try to live with just the bare necessities. It's also why we only eat one meal in the morning. Um, for shelter, you should be content even with the f staying at the foot of a tree. For medicines, you should be content with drinking your own urine, which is apparently a very good medicine. Uh, monks don't have to live in monasteries. Wherever a monk lives, that's a monastery. Uh, but they do have to stay in one place for three months. Right now, it's the three-month rain, so you have to stay in a. You have to actually stay in a in a building. You can't stay under a tree during the rains. It's not proper because it rains a lot. Of course, it doesn't rain a lot here, but um, that's the tradition. Three months. I have been practicing for a few months. Could I advance to noting three parts of a step instead of one part, like stepping right, stepping left? And what are the three words that one could use to note with? Thanks. It's a free world. You're welcome to do whatever you want. I wouldn't give you the three steps personally until I've gone through the the stages with you. So you'd have to, if you wanted me to give it to you, you'd have to um, sign up for an online course and we'd meet every week. and. After a few weeks, I might give you the second step, and the third step, even the fourth step, fifth step, sixth step. But I'll only give them to you once we've gone through some interviews. Either you come here and you do an intensive course, or we do an online course. For those interested in the online course, it's here on this site. You just go into the menu and you go to the schedule, pick a slot. Uh, during the week, and then you have to actually show up, and we do video conferencing and talk about your practice. We've right now got several people doing that. It's difficult for me to meditate at home. Somebody is always there, and they have poor boundary sense. They often come in disruptively and don't really respect the meditation practice. This leads me to be on edge when meditating, that they may come in at any moment. I try to think worry, worry, as that is the experience, but oftentimes this significantly detracts from the meditation and hurts my focus. Do you have any advice for dealing with this situation better? 
Worry, worry is the proper thing to do. Um, there might also be disliking or frustration, but um, the, the, the statement that this significantly distract, detracts from the meditation is a judgment. The fact, the idea that it hurts your focus is a judgment. This is not a problem. The problem is that you get upset about it and that you, you wish it were otherwise. So don't worry about your focus. That's not what, where we're focusing on. Um, don't worry about quality of meditation. There's no such thing. Quality of meditation is in the moment. When you have a moment of clarity, every moment that you're clearly aware, when you say to yourself, worrying, that's good meditation. If you don't like it and you say to yourself, disliking, you think about the person coming in, thinking, or the person comes in and you hear them and you say, hearing, hearing. Or you have to open your eyes and talk to them and it's frustrating and it angers you and annoys you. You say angry, angry, or annoyed. Every time you do that, that's good meditation. Don't worry about anything else. Focus, concentration, calm. None of that matters. I mean, all of that will come through the practice. Does a meditator ever take nirvana as object instead of the stomach as a point of return for the mind? Thank you, Bhante. What would it mean to take Nibbana as the object? The only time you can um, you can actually take Nibbana as an object, well, there's two ways. One, you can conceive of it, and that's an actual tranquility meditation. But the only real way to take Nibbana as an object is to enter into Nibbana, which is, of course, that's the attainment of enlightenment. That's the goal. You're all caught up on questions, Bhante. All right. Well, thanks everyone for your questions tonight. Thanks, Robin, for your help. Thank you, Bhante. Good night, everyone.